Hi, and welcome to the Homeschool Snapshots podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and this is the podcast that gives you a peek into the lives of the homeschoolers next door. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of the podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so glad that you're joining me here today. Oh, guys, I was pretty excited about this interview. Last summer, when Susan said yes, that she was going to be on the show, I was at turns just super excited to get the opportunity to ask the questions of Susan Weisbauer that I thought homeschool moms might want to know the answers to. And then I was a little nervous as well because, hey, it's Susan Weisbauer. She wrote wrote the book on homeschooling. But it was fun. It was so much fun to get to talk to her. And she's such a gracious lady. And I really enjoyed every minute of it. Now, if you have only ever read The Well-Trained Mind, and that's your only experience with Susan's work, then I would really recommend that you go find some of her audio recordings. She has a few that are at the Well-Trained Mind Summer Conference Series. They're recorded right now, but she will have some live ones coming up next summer. I'm also going to be speaking at that conference series. She also has some recordings at PeaceHillPress.com. And I find Susan's audio presentations, these workshop presentations that she does for conferences, are so full of great down-to-earth practical homeschooling advice. She's a fabulous speaker. She's funny to listen to, and the advice that she gives is spot on. So if you haven't ever checked out any of Susan's audio, I really recommend you go do that. I own quite a few of them, and they're some of my absolute favorite homeschool audios to listen to, and I listen to them again and again. In the meantime, we have Susan on the podcast today, and one of the things I want you to listen for is she kind of gives us a cheater's guide to exactly how we should be using The Well-Trained Mind, and she's getting ready to come out with the fourth edition. She talks a little bit about that, but I think some of the advice she gives on how to use the volume itself will be really helpful to a number of people out there. I know it was really helpful for me as well. So let's get on with the interview right after this word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by SimplifiedOrganization.com. So I have a question for you. Are you a paper planner or are you a digital planner or are you like me? I am actually a hybrid planner. But if you're trying to figure out which method might be best for you, I have some help for you. If you head on over to SimplifiedOrganization.com forward slash snapshots, There are some fun tools for you there to help you figure out if you're paper, if you're digital, and then what you can do about being either one. There's a quiz there that you can take to see if you would be better suited to one or the other. And there's also a webinar there that my good friend Misty Winkler has recorded on the benefits of paper versus digital planning. She's going to let you decide which side you fall down on. And then she's got lots of great tips and tools to help you make the best of whichever decision you made. Head on over to simplifiedorganization.com forward slash snapshots to get access to the quiz and your free webinar. Our guest today is writer, historian, teacher, homeschool graduate, and veteran homeschool mom, Dr. Susan Weisbauer. Susan taught literature and writing at the College of William and Mary in Virginia for 15 years 
and she equips parents to teach their children with her popular book, The Well-Trained Mind, and with other quality resources, including The Complete Writer and The Well-Trained Mind Online Academy. Something that I appreciate about Susan is that she provides parents with helpful tools for continuing their own educations, even as they seek to educate their children. She does this with books like The Well-Educated Mind, The Story of Western Science, and her series of history books for adults. Welcome to the program, Susan. Thank you. I'm so happy you're joining me here today. I've been looking forward to it. Well, tell me a little bit about your family. My family. Okay, so I have four children. My oldest graduated from the University of Virginia last year. He was a drama major, and right now he is in Chicago. Actually, he's in, he is apprenticing at Second City, which is... I know, I know. We're all very excited, very <laughs> proud. Of he keeps saying, but I'm not making any money. And I keep yeah. saying, no, of course you're not. But we're, we're just, we're so proud of what he's doing. He's really found his passion. So my uh, second son is a junior at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, uh, here in Richmond. And he is actually uh, majoring in elementary education. So he's getting ready to, to do most of his teaching classes, actually, this year. And uh, my third son, Daniel is 18 and he is has just gone to college. He's at Christopher Newport University, which is about an hour away from us here near Williamsburg. And he is currently planning on being a music composition major. So he's a very talented violinist, but composition is really where his heart lies. And then uh, my youngest is going to be, well, she's 14 now and she is in her first year of high school. Well, you know, your mom's homeschooling journey is pretty well documented in The Well-Trained Mind. She was dealing with kind of a subpar school system there in Virginia and some very precocious children. And that was how you guys have actually blessed all of us through, you know, that's how it all started right, right. there with her journey. But tell us a little bit about your homeschooling journey. Well, you know, it's very interesting. I had an excellent, excellent experience being homeschooled. I loved it. We grew up on a farm as well as having the freedom to explore all of these you know different intellectual paths and activities we also just had a lot of freedom period to run around we had animals we kept pigs we had chickens we had horses so it was the kind of childhood that i wanted for my children i both wanted them to be able to be on a farm and i wanted to give them that same intellectual freedom that i had had so when i got married you know i I explained this to my husband that this was something I really wanted to reproduce with my own kids. I wanted to live on a farm and I wanted to homeschool them. And he had been to school in the Baltimore public city school systems at a time when they were particularly awful. I don't know how they are now, but back then they were terrible. You know, he was in fear for his life during junior high that he was going to get beat up in the bathroom. So he couldn't even concentrate on studies. So he thought homeschooling sounded like a wonderful idea. So we were able to move back to the family farm before we started having kids and raising them with that same freedom and that same lack of institutional pressure was something that had always been my plan. So we homeschooled all four of them, graduated the three oldest boys. Uh, this year, actually, my daughter has gone to school. She is actually in a Montessori school, which is proving to be a really great transition because it still gives her a lot of the same freedom and ability to govern herself that homeschooling did. But we decided that now that all of her brothers were out of the house, that she's very sociable. It wasn't going to be good for her to be the last child home with just her and me after being part of this big noisy crew. 
So that's been a big transition for us. Yeah, I've heard quite a few homeschooling parents say that when they got to that last child, especially if that child was more extroverted, that, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I absolutely think you can homeschool an only child, but I think that that's a little bit different than having a child who's used to having siblings around and then the siblings are gone. Yeah. And that I tell you what, that Montessori high school sounds absolutely fascinating because so oh, much yeah. you read in here about Montessori is geared towards the preschool and mm-hmm. lower elementary set. So that would yeah. be interesting. Well, it's been a very good experience for us so far. The headmistress of the school, actually, when we went in to do the interview, she said, I used to be a homeschooler and I loved the well-trained mind. So she was, uh, she was on our, she was on our wavelength right from the beginning. Oh, nice. Well, thinking back on those days when you had all four of those guys there at the house, I have a multiple choice question for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Your homeschool day was most like which literary classic? Would it have been A, Persuasion, B, Plato's Dialogues, C, War of the Worlds, or D, Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors? Oh, I'm going to have to go with the comedy of errors. Definitely. We were all always very well intentioned. So I can't go with war of the worlds. And we weren't nearly placid enough for persuasion. And there wasn't nearly enough high minded dialogue to pick anything platonic. But (laughs) we all did our our very best most of the time. (laughs) However, it turned out. (laughs) However, it turned out. That's right. Well, which subject was hardest for you to teach? I think the thing that I had the hardest time with was science. I really had always enjoyed math as a student, so that didn't particularly give me a hard time. But I had not been given a very strong science training myself, and the resources that were out there for us were, in the 1990s, still pretty poor. I've been reviewing material for the new edition of The Well-Trained Mind, the fourth edition that I'm working on now. And I'm just really struck with how many great science resources for homeschoolers have been developed in just the past six or eight years. You know, we just really didn't have those when my kids were young. And believe it or not, I didn't have the Internet when my oldest children were in grammar school. So I, I didn't have that resource open to me. Now, I know history and writing are both kind of your thing. Were they your favorite subjects to teach? Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I found teaching writing quite frustrating because I was a natural writer. Nobody ever had to teach me how to write. And there is a, yeah, there's a, there's a pretty substantial subset of students for whom that's true. They just figure out how to do it on their own. And what I discovered was that most writing programs assumed that you essentially could figure out how to do writing on yourself, how to get those words down on paper. And, you know, I had out of my four children, I had one natural writer. So I really had to figure out how to teach them to do something that had been very intuitive for me. And that was tough, but it was incredibly good that I had to figure out how to do that made me a much better teacher. Well, and that's why we have the complete writer now. Exactly. I call that my engineer's guide to writing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's for kids who just don't really naturally sort of express themselves in this way. And that was three of my four kids. Thinking back, what book did you think was a must read for your children before they left your home? Oh, I don't think I can pick just one. I mean, we have family favorites that are sort of part of our family literacy, you know, the books that everybody refers to all the time. You know, we actually, we read the Lord of the Rings, the whole thing. My husband was a hero out loud to all of the kids before they were really old enough to read it themselves. And that was long before the movies came out. Just because that for me had been such a huge part of the development of my imagination 
to be in this particular world. And then another family favorite that I think that all of the kids have read are the, well, not my daughter yet now that I think about it, but are the C.S. Forrester books, the Hornblower series. There was something about those books, which both my husband and I read when we were younger, which said something about courage and persistence and also really gave us all a window into how much harder life was in a previous day, how difficult daily actions like bathing and eating, you know, finding food were even just, you know, 100, 150 years ago really gave us some perspective on how much simpler those things have become. I have a friend who just absolutely loves the Hornblower series and they're her her favorite books. She talks about them all the time. So I may have to pick one up now. (laughs) (laughs) I recommend them. Does your family have any special homeschool traditions that they had? Did you have any particular ways you celebrated the first day of school or took a break when things got hard? Well, I don't, we didn't really have rituals. And I think that comes from my having been homeschooled. We never, to tell you the truth, really had a beginning or end of the school year. We always did school all year round. We found it so much easier than stopping and starting again. Doing school was just part of our regular daily schedule. It was never not part of our daily schedule. And you know, the advantage to that is that you get very comfortable with learning becoming an everyday part of your life. And the disadvantage, of course, is that the kids never know what grade they're in. So when the pediatrician asks them, they look at you, you know, they give you the deer in the headlights look and you feel like an idiot. But it was a very good daily schedule for us. We used to do these things called adventure days. When my daughter was little, she couldn't say adventure. She would say adventure. And one day I had just so had it with our daily routines. I said, forget it, guys. We're all going to have an adventure. And we'd all jump in the car and go off and, you know, explore the James River or have a picnic or do something completely off the wall. So um, every morning then she would say, hopefully, is this an adventure day? (laughs) So that's probably the closest thing we had to a ritual was Everyone was allowed to say, you know what? I've had it. I need an adventure day. And then we would uh, we'd take off. Those are some of the best days sometimes. Oh, yeah. We had some great ones. Well, a lot of times when I chat with second generation homeschoolers, there's this kind of form of that age old parent child tension. You know, the, oh, I won't do that when I'm a parent or I'll do things differently than what my mom mm-hmm. did. Did you find yourself thinking that very much as a second generation homeschool mom? just part of parenting, period. I mean, I think we all go into parenting thinking I'm going to do this better and I'm not going to do this at all. And that's, you know, it's just part of staking out who you are and what you want your family to look like. I was more regimented about some things and less about others. I would say I was a lot less regimented about record keeping than my mother had been. We did a lot of checking off boxes and we did a lot of completing worksheets that didn't necessarily need to be finished because She was, when we started homeschooling back in the 1970s, the law was very, very unclear about whether it was even legal. And so understandably, she was very concerned that someone would come in and accuse us all of truancy and, you know, take the kids away. So she was, she dotted I's and she crossed T's like nobody's business. And while I understand the need for that, it did introduce a formality and an artificiality to a lot of what we did. And that, that was much more marked in the earlier years. By the time we got into high school, I think she felt a lot more confident in what she was doing and she was a lot less afraid. But with my children, I, I did very little in the way of formal record keeping for them until they got into high school. I kept portfolios of their work, but I didn't check off a lot of boxes with them. So that's probably the biggest difference. Are you and your mom very alike or are you different in personality? I think we're probably 
probably different in personality in a number of important ways. We both, I think, we share the same love for teaching Mm -hmm. and we teach in very much the same way. So in that way, we are very much alike. What do you think is this generation of homeschool moms' biggest impediment to success with homeschooling their children? Uh, Peer pressure. (laughs) Okay. There's so many people doing it now that, you know, it's developed its own sort of peer groups. There's all this pressure to be in a co-op and there's this sense that, okay, if you're not in a co-op or if you don't use this particular curriculum or if you don't, you know, if you don't, oh, I hate this one. If you don't get your kid into college early, you know, you're not doing it as well as you could be. So, you know, along with coming along with homeschooling becoming more common has been this increased tendency to compare ourselves to other homeschoolers. I know that then when we were being homeschooled, you know, my mom didn't have anybody to compare us to. And that's not how we gauged the success or failure, you know, of our homeschool. And when my kids were small, I actually, okay, I, I live in a weird area. The particular area that I'm in when my kids were small, there were homeschool groups around me, but most of them thought that I was not nearly Christian enough to associate with. And literally when I would go, I would try going to these homeschool meetings, I would go in and there would just be this dead silence until I walked back out again. And then I'd hear them talking. So I kind of gave up on homeschool groups. And that was just a weirdness of this particular area that we're in. But so I never had really anybody to compare us to either. We were just doing our own thing. But I I think it's, I think it's difficult when you feel this weight of expectation from other homeschoolers on you. Okay. Now I have to ask you a question here. Was that before or after you wrote the book? Oh, that was after I wrote the book. Okay, I cannot imagine, and we are the most welcoming community in the world, but I cannot imagine you walking into my group of homeschool moms and everybody just not absolutely be being intimidated into complete and utter silence the moment you walked in the door. <laughs> Maybe, you know what? That's a, that's a much more charitable interpretation. <laughs> Maybe that's what was going on. Because I'm pretty sure that, you know, just all the talking would stop. Yeah, we're not saying anything until she leaves. <laughs> <laughs> well, what... For whatever reason it happened, it didn't make for a great homeschool group experience for me. It didn't help you at all, did it? (laughs) It did not. Okay, so peer pressure. So, you know, if we were going to, you know, take a nugget and give a piece of advice to homeschooling moms who are listening to this, it would be avoid the peer pressure at all costs. Do what's right for your family. Stop looking at what other people are doing and stop listening to what other people are doing and ask yourself what you want for your family. It sounds easy. It's not. Uh, But I think that that is the way to not drive yourself crazy. Right. Well, you know, moms tend to fall into one of two camps with the well-trained mind. Either they absolutely love it and they feel like it empowers them Mm -hmm. or they take one look at it and they're kind of completely overwhelmed and intimidated by it. So if that second mom came up to you at a homeschool convention and was actually brave enough to express that thought, what Mm -hmm. would you tell her? I would tell her what, what I've said over and over again. It's a guidebook. It's not a Bible. It is a set of suggestions to help you organize your thinking about your homeschool. Some of those suggestions will resonate with you more than others. Some of them you'll adopt without any change at all. Some of them you'll reject completely. And some of them you'll alter to fit yourself. So it is a, it is a buffet for you to choose from. It's not a meal that you've prepaid for and so you have to eat every single bite. It doesn't work that way. So I 
actually would say, Pam, that there's a third group of moms, which I hear from quite a bit, particularly on our message boards. And those are the ones that are using the book in exactly that way. Some of it they love. Some of it they're like, nah, no, I don't want to do things that way. And they're picking and choosing what is good and useful from it and leaving the rest. Okay. So buffet. I like that analogy. Buffet. <laughs> well, I have the third edition of The Well-Trained Mind on my shelf, of course. So tell me, why do I need to buy the fourth? Well, it depends how old your kids are, actually. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure that my publisher is going to hate me saying this. I'm not sure that anybody who has an earlier edition needs to buy the fourth edition. I will say the math and science chapters are significantly revised. And this, again, goes to the number of wonderful resources, which are now not only available, but affordable. The last time I did a revision of The Well-Trained Mind, there were more maths and sciences resources out there than there had been previously, but a lot of them were still so expensive. And, you know, one of my rubrics for recommending curricula, I have three. Number one is that they're clear and systematic. Number two is that they're user-friendly. You know, they don't make you do five hours of preparation in order to teach one half hour of a subject. And then the third is that they're affordable. And a lot of them failed on that account. Now there's so many more affordable resources out there. So those chapters are very much revised. I'm putting in some additional charts and helps about how to organize your week, how to organize your year. I've had a lot of feedback from parents saying, you know, more lists and charts saying, here's how my day might look in first grade. Here's how my day might look in second grade would be useful. So we're doing that as well. But the primary reason to continue to revise it is just that the materials go out of print, particularly for the grammar stage. Elementary education resources stay in print an average of three to four years, and then you can't find them anymore. It's so exasperating. So, you know, the longer an edition is out there, the more likely it is that a parent who picks it up for the first time isn't going to be able to find any of the elementary education stuff. So that's really the primary reason for revising it is just to keep those lists as up to date as possible. Right. So how do you require a child's best work or a specific, you know, a good standard of excellence? without it either being a battle of wills or causing conflict in the relationship? Well, you know, I wish I had an easy answer for you on that one. But, you know, homeschooling, I'll say this again, homeschooling is a type of parenting. And homeschooling, it's not free from the same tensions that parenting has. You know, this is the exact same challenge you would face if you were asking your child to clean their room properly or to be kind to their sibling you know, you might get snarky, grudging, uncompliant, quote unquote, kindness, or you might get heartfelt kindness. That depends on how well you've communicated to the child what it is that you want them to do and also how willing the child is to respond to you. I think all homeschoolers are going to go through periods where one or more children are resisting them because that is a natural pattern between parents and children. They grow a little bit all of a sudden they have new ideas and they've got new, you know, problems and they've got new goals and they grate against you for a little while until the two of you figure out how to talk to each other again. And that's going to happen in education as well. Now, I will say that in terms of the schoolwork, we never had that much trouble with getting them to, you know, do the assigned work properly. It just really wasn't one of our family dynamics. I mean, they gave me a hard time about a lot of things, but they didn't give me a hard time about the schoolwork. And I think that every family has areas in which the kids don't question and areas in which they do question. 
And uh, if you have a kid who's giving you a hard time about doing work up to a certain standard, you treat it like any other parenting issue. First of all, you think to yourself, is this a mountain I want to die on? Is this really important enough for me to push it? And it might be, or it might not be. You have to decide that for each child each year. And then if you decide that it is important enough to push it, you have to set some consequences. You will do this up to this standard or else here's what's going to happen or here is what you will have to do instead, or, you know, here's the privilege that you're going to lose. Just as you would with any, any parenting, any parenting issue that you're struggling with, with a child. That's interesting. I'm really, so I'm, it takes me a while to internalize, but I'm liking how you keep repeating that, you know, basically homeschooling is parenting. You're not going to put your parenting in one box and your homeschooling in a different box. Right. It's really all the same thing. Yes. And you're going to have the same dynamics at work. I will say, and, I, and you know, I've said this before publicly, so this is not any kind of big surprise or secret. One of my children, I wish that I had put in school, one of my boys, he and I didn't communicate well when he was in his teenage years. Sweet child. We actually were wonderful terms now, but we went through a pretty rough patch. And looking back on it, I think my teaching was very ineffective because we were going through a rough patch. And I think it would have been wiser for us to put him in school so that teachers could deal with him on that level so that we could have really focused in on our personal relationship. And what happened was because there was so much conflict, there was conflict in the morning before school, there was conflict during school, and then there was conflict after school. That came to be the defining feature of our relationship for a long time. And I really, I really regret that. If I could do it again, I would at least remove the school part of the day from that personal conflict that we were having. And I'd hand it over to someone else. Mm -hmm. Hindsight, you know. Yeah, always. Yeah, always. Well, besides The Well-Trained Mind, what is one book that every homeschooling mother should read? Let me see. One book that every homeschooling mother should read. Okay, I'm going to give you a weird answer to this. It's okay. (laughs) I think it ought to be New Seeds of Contemplation by Thomas Merton. It's not about homeschooling. It's about peace. It is about understanding yourself and the things that drive you and coming to terms with those. It's about understanding the difference between your responsibilities that you must carry out and the things that you're choosing to do for yourself. And I I really think that that sort of self-knowledge is at the root of successful, by which I mean, you know, doesn't drive you to the funny farm uh, homeschooling. I like your definition of homeschool success there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not, you know, your child's in Harvard. It's you don't end up crazy at the end of it. That's great. <laughs> well, and you end up with children who love you and are in communication with you and at least can hear you when you tell them, you know, what it is that you want for them. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You recently added an academy of online classes yes. to, to the Well-Trained Mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is something I think is important for parents to get a good grasp of. Besides, mm-hmm. you know, helping choose a solid class or actually choosing the class that your child is going to participate in, what is the role of the parent in outsourcing to distance learning as their child gets older? Well, you know, when the older your child gets the more you become generally sort of a coordinator of education rather than the actual deliverer of it, that's natural. That's as it should be. Once your student is in high school, you should be outsourcing the majority of your subjects, meaning that you have arranged for the student to receive 
expert teaching, whether it's a correspondence course, whether it's a self-teaching curriculum that you're supervising, whether it is something that you're teaching directly because it's something that you're passionate about and interested in or an online course, high school is a matter of outsourcing. It is important for high school students to have this outsourcing because they need to be responsible to a number of different teachers and tutors for their different subjects in order to prepare them for college, because that's what the college experience is going to be like. So it's important to outsource. Outsourcing to online courses isn't really any different than outsourcing to a tutor or to a, you know, a a co-op or any other outsourcing. It's just that the delivery system is through the computer. So when your student first begins taking an online course, the most important thing that you can do is ask them when all of their assignments are due and then help them to write down those due dates on some sort of calendar or plan book or online calendar, something so that they can remember when everything is due. Because when students first start online courses, it's like the due dates are invisible. They go to class and they, you know, chat with their friends in the sidebar and they listen to the teacher and they react to the teacher. And then as soon as the laptop screen is closed, they forget that there's work that needs to be done. It's definitely out of sight, out of mind. So the parent's responsibility is to teach students how to keep an eye on those deadlines and how to put in reminders. You know, oh, you've got a paper due in a week. Time to start working on it now. A lot of high school students never actually get that kind of training. Mm -hmm. And that's why they really flounder when they get into that freshman year of college. And all of a sudden, nobody's looking out for them except themselves. Yeah, actually, they flounder a lot in high school because of that, too. (laughs) Yeah, they really can. Yep. Yeah, because... I think we kind of look at that future there where, oh, you know, I've got a 10 year old and in a few years, you know, she can take these classes from somebody else, but it doesn't, you know, totally abdicate us, you know, our responsibility or anything like that. Well, you have to remember that there are two things that students are learning when they take online courses. The first is that they're learning the material, whatever the subject of the course is, and the teacher is actually responsible for that. And then the second thing that they're learning is how to be responsible, how to keep deadlines, how to remember deadlines, how to meet deadlines. And that part you have to train them to do. You can't expect the instructor to do that. You know, you have to, the instructor has to have some faith that if they say, do this assignment by such and such a date, that there are people in the child's life that are reminding them that this needs to be done. Right. And helping the child break the work down into manageable chunks. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I have a pop quiz for you. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Pen or pencil? Pen, but only black, never blue. Talker or listener? Oh, listener. Fiction or nonfiction? I'm going to land right in the middle on that one. Cat person or dog person? Definitely dog. Lord of the Rings or Star Wars? Lord of the Rings. Ocean or mountains? Mountains. Essay or project? Essay. It was so nice to have you here today. Thank you, Pam. And there you have it. Such a fun interview. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. If you are new to the Homeschool Snapshots podcast, this is episode 23. We've got episode 1 through 22 in iTunes for you, or you can find those at homeschoolsnapshotspodcast.com. And also, if you're a fan of Homeschool Morning Time, there's the Your Morning Basket podcast, which is another little podcast that I do. And you can find that one at yourmorningbasket.com. So all of the show notes about everything Susan and I chatted about will be on ED Snapshots. 
That will be edsnapshots.com forward slash 23 for all of Susan's great book recommendations and any of the other resources that we mentioned during the show. And this is the final episode of our fall season for 2015. We will be back in January with a new season of Homeschool Snapshots, and we look forward to seeing you then. But for the next month, we're going to take a little bit of a break and enjoy our holidays. We hope you do the same. You guys have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we will catch you in January of 2016. And until then, be sure to keep on homeschooling. Thank you.